The curators of these idiots The boss was a Jew The Communist Party is run by Jews You led a march against the Bavarian state and German Reich I was simply taking back that which was stolen from us five years before Welcome to Prussian Socialism Bringing you culture whether you like it or not or today, bringing you National Socialism, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Although, we're always doing that. Today is the 100th anniversary of the Beer Hall Putsch, and we would be remiss if we did not at least do a podcast on this historic and uh, almost sacred occasion, really. So, my Beer Hall Putsch story. Back in 2013, I went to Munich in the springtime. And I went to go find, I wasn't a national socialist yet. I wasn't even a real, I wasn't even an anti-Semite, but <laughs> I went to go find the Burgerbräu Keller where Hitler did the thing. Uh, and I, I, forgive me if I've told this story before, but I was out on the street right next to uh, the Feldherrenhalle, right on, like if you're, you, you know where the Feldherrenhalle is, where there's going to be a lot of geography of Munich talked right, about yeah. in this so <laughs> you know pull up google maps if you need to but the feldherrnhalle memorial uh, on odeon's plots if you're standing on it and looking out to the right is a little street or a fairly big street that leads back toward the um the main square in town where there's uh the the new rat house and it was right there right to the on the right of the feldherrnhalle where the Nazis and the police came head to head and, and had a shootout. So I was standing there 10 years ago and I, cause I had looked up on Google maps, like where is the burger Bry Keller? Uh, and it gave me a spot actually right behind, um, right behind the Feldherrnhalle. There's a little alley that goes behind it. Um, and it, and recently, so in reading up for this episode, I realized that's not a, at all where it was. The felt the, uh, burger Bry Keller is actually on the other side of the Isar. So it's on the right bank, the uh, the east side of the Isar River. Oh. So when they did the march, uh, when we'll back up and explain the whole thing, but like when they did the march, they moved from the the uh, Burgerbräu Keller, which is on the the west side of the Isar River, across the river, across the bridge, the Ludwig's Bridge, through the Isar Tor Gate, up to the the main square of the new rat house past the old rat house. And then they moved up to, uh, the Feldherrenhalle to the North. So I was standing there 10 years ago and like looking for it. And I was just asking locals and <laughs> I tried one, asking one guy one and he like, when they, when yeah. they first go over to Europe, yeah. <laughs> he like, he like ran away from me. And, uh, <laughs> I asked this old guy who was there with his wife and I was dressed well. Like I was wearing, like khaki, like like I normally do, wearing khakis and like a nice shirt or whatever. Yeah. And I asked this old guy who's there with his wife in my most polite German, like, "Excuse me, sir, could you? Uh, I'm looking for the Burger Boy Keller. Do you know where it is?" I was an, under the impression that it was still there somewhere, and he kind of laughed and he assumed that I meant the Hofbrau House, mm. which you know is still there and is actually where um, a lot of Nazi like events happened. Back back then, but I was like, no, no, no I'm looking for the Burger Broy Keller. Um, I was at the Hoffer House yesterday. I know where that is. Like, I'm looking for the Burger Broy Keller, and he's like, oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> it hasn't been there. And the exact word he used was, 
Hitlerzeit. It hasn't <laughs> been there since the Hitler time. <laughs> <laughs> the Hitler time. And yeah, it's not there anymore. But, you know, I hope you have a good time in Munich. And like, he smirked at me. He fucking smirked. This old guy <laughs> fucking knew. He's like, I know these Americans. They're all here. They want to learn about Nazis. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> But yeah, anyway, apparently I was in totally the wrong spot because the real Burger Broy Keller, or it used to be, and now it's just like a shitty corporate park, is over on... a lot of unfortunate uh, monuments have gone the way of. Yeah. You know, what's remarkable to me is how much easier it is nowadays to find information. Like, even five or ten years ago, it was kind of hard. You would actually have to, like, pull up some books, go to a library really dig to put these pieces together now you can find this stuff on wikipedia or just on a common google search um or you can go on youtube and look up um look up videos on youtube and you can get there's whole videos i saw of people marching through munich and showing you the exact route and describing everything that happened on the way from the burgerbroi keller to the uh, the feldherrenhalle i mean it's it's amazing how much more you can just find easily now like people are we're all lazy shits now uh, yeah. as far as getting information. You don't have to like know anything to the figure things out. The age has really revolutionized the ability for people to understand history in a, in a light that we could have possibly never had on a mass scale before. Yeah. but uh, Especially visually. What a... Since this is the 100th anniversary, what is your, William, your main takeaway on the Beer Hall Putsch or the Hitler Putsch as it's usually called in German? Right. Uh, as far as oh, there's a lot of takeaways. What do you so we got to narrow that? Okay, one well, what, there's, all there's right. a lot of there's a lot what of went right. What went this. wrong? Whew. Well, we, we, <laughs> what went wrong is easy or is, right. is extensive. What went right? Let's start there. Okay, so what went right? First off, the ability to muster fervor to get to get something off the ground to begin with to get about four thousand dudes of right. various factions together to lead a attempted push on the an Reich's att- government. It's an attempted thing, right? Like they, they, they at least were able to pull off the ability to organize on that scale. Uh, yes. Right. Um, and put that force to motion, which is ma- amassing, amassing the organization and then putting that force to motion are two separate things in and of themselves. And I think that they deserve a lot of respect. Um, so what, what allowed that? Like what, why are were conditions then different than now? Oh man. Um, well, because I mean, I'll give you the tra- I'll give- training. I think it's like I, you and I are both military men in that sense. Well, you, well, me, not so much, but yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, as far as learned individuals are concerned, you know, like you've you've read them all. You know, you you know, Klaus was inside and out as 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 do I. That that whole concept of everybody being on the same page from the get go, right? Most of these guys were veterans, all from the Fry Corps. Uh, they all kind of it didn't matter what faction you were from you all understood the same base general military information to organize yeah like what a platoon is what a squad is right uh how not to contradict your superiors or your subordinates (laughs) how to like work within a chain of command how to disseminate information disseminate information uh effectively but without giving away too much information yeah how to like follow orders even though you're not getting every single piece of information or like, even even the the basic, especially for the the time, like the guys that grew up through the you know late eighteen hundreds and into the nineteen hundreds and lived through the first world war, they were able to hold rank under fire. 
right? Like that kind of stuff. That kind of training is oh, stay in their ranks. Yeah, like they yeah. were able to, to to form ranks and hold. They had, one, they were able to form ranks without having to deal with you know. Yeah, basic everybody training. knew that back then. Like if you yeah. watch videos from like nineteen fourteen, like when the war, when the first world war was just starting, like it's all videos of people like guys after they've just signed up, like they already know how to march. Like yeah. they don't even need to be taught no, that. No, like that's really. part of society at that point. You know, it's like you like you, they know how to fall in like right face and march. Yeah, well, like I don't know. I I it, it was easy for me whenever you know I joined up or whatever. But you as a boy, most most young boys play at war. You know, like you you hop. To no, it. people don't know that nowadays though. You know? Like people so. back then knew that as a matter of course. They did it in school. Like they yeah. like nowadays you might do it in PE class. I mean, you're not marching, but like you at least have to stand in ranks in I know PE when class. I was young that's what the thing you would know you would line up in, in the hallways and you would you know everybody would kind of not okay. you wouldn't that's march. not the same well no of course not but I mean, it's even the basic things is of, of line like forming lines and everything else like you're supposed to be able to line up right you're supposed to be able to you know hop to I think Boy Scouts helps out a lot with that kind of stuff too and a lot of kids were in youth programs and whatnot so yeah you know uh, um, but yeah so everybody was able to to kind of form up and and whatnot, and they were able to organize in a way that uh, is very difficult uh, for any type of organization or group to do today. Uh, well, can you just, give me an example? Whew. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to not step on toes. I'll give you an example. Right. So back in like 2017 or so, when we would organize events, people sort of expected to be told every single piece of information as soon as possible, which is good. In a way, right? Because like, it's good that they're curious and it's good that the the lowest man wants to know as much as he can possibly know. And that's actually the right attitude. But especially with like people leaking information and like very doing trying to do uh, activism events where like you might leak it. Somebody might leak information or somebody might be stupid or that whatever. It's much more effective when you have a sort of established protocol where you can just say, everyone show up in this general area at this exact time. And you don't even need to explain to people that this is what's going to happen because they already know because they've done it a few times. Right. Because you start off with like protocols and you have to like hammer it into people's heads initially because they've never dealt with it before possibly. And then you start to move to more of a, a situation where it's like a tradition. Like people don't even, they don't need to be, have like memoranda shoved in their face to like get it. They don't need to be berated to get it. They just know it because, well, it's been told to them. That's what everybody else does. Right. And I think that's what was the key piece of or one of the key pieces of the the beer hall putsch is that you had something like a majority, if not 70, 80 percent of the men involved in the beer hall putsch were World War One veterans or at least German army veterans. Yeah. And a lot had actually served together. Yeah. So and so they already the they, Bavarian, they already had these like standard processes in their minds. They knew what to expect. It wasn't like a question of, well, uh, gee, Fritz, like, do I sh- do I show up 10 minutes late? Do I uh, not bring my pack? Do I not make my pack look like everybody else's pack? Like just mm-hmm. every dumb little piece of of behavior was already sketched out in their heads and everybody already did it. Yeah. Now, like when somebody said left face, everybody actually turned left. There wasn't like the weird, you know, slapstick comedy, some guy turning right. Some guy now, this actually left. kind of bit them in the ass, though, going into like why why the whole thing failed, mm. because from 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 reading about it, there's a, this book that uh, I was reading 
the trial of Adolf Hitler, uh, the Beer Hall Putsch, and the rise of Nazi Germany by David King, that is a fairly recent uh, sort of journalistic book about it, um, yeah. written in a kind of uh, very approachable way. For reference. And he, 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 he clearly used like a lot of stuff from... Uh, he actually used like the trial transcripts and stuff to write and he was mainly talking about the trial but oh, he right. spends about 100 pages talking about the putsch itself to set it up and talking about how how the thing failed what seems to have happened is that there just was not any contingency planning right there was not any expectation that this might not work mm-hmm. which in a way is sort of a like it's the the problem that you want to have because everyone's so disciplined and so used to doing things right that it doesn't even enter your mind that maybe things will go wrong. <laughs> but that's what happened. Yeah. And then when things did go wrong, everyone just started improvising. Yeah. You need to have at least a plan. Well, and that's – I think that was – that might have actually been a problem with the fact that Hitler's experience in the military was Bavarian and not directly Prussian. Um, and it was Prussian tradition to do like the extreme – you know, back planning. Yeah, right. An extreme yeah. contingency planning. Yeah, like having 80 plans for 80 different scenarios and everything else like that. But that wasn't actually necessarily the, the protocol of the Bavarian well, army. Well, you know, I don't know that I'd blame it on the Bavarian army. But, I mean, you are you are right about, like, the Prussian army was, was the one that did right. that kind of thing and not the Bavarian. And I would just imagine that maybe his experiences weren't exactly I mean, he was, he was a Gefreite. Like, right. he was a, a lance corporal. So, he didn't have to deal with like the big maps and charts well actually- true yeah but even i, I still feel like it because it permeated part like, because prussian militarism like permeated down even to the lower levels right like the they allowed a lot of autonomy in their their um i guess lower officers and and some ncos true but i mean a, 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 a corporal or a lance corporal would never have seen any of that well, and would not have been expected it, but, to know. And I feel like he would have at least heard. Yeah, I guess he, he probably some, would have heard like if if this happens, then this happens. So they, he, they could have not not heard of Clausewitz, right? At at that point in time, any Prussian any Prussian would have read Clausewitz, or not not any Prussian officer would have read Clausewitz. So his subordinates would have at least heard about him in some way, shape, or form. He was like a you know national hero effectively at that time. I mean, it's not so much Clausewitz so much as it is just like the implementation of a strict set of procedures, right? that everybody understands and that's standardized but that also is flexible i mean like right. you, it, you, you can't move to like the stage of flexibility if you don't have the the strict and they were fresh off set. the heels of 1871 at the time so this would have been known i think i think at least to a decent extent with you know the prussian military so, so i think that i'm i'm not going to give hitler total slack <laughs> on, well, to, on not having contingency plans to illustrate I that i think that, that might have contributed to it to illustrate how this works uh in the aftermath of World War One, uh, after like they'd signed the armistice, but not the treaty yet. So November 11th happened, shooting stopped. The condition of the armistice was that the Germans would withdraw from France and Belgium within one month. And they had two or three million men arrayed across Belgium and northern France. Moving two or three million men in one month is is very very difficult. Oh yeah, uh, and this was actually almost a the final feat of German arms in World War One was actually getting all of their men out and evacuated, and then all of their supplies like their artillery shells and their big guns dumped 
uh, according to procedure and like left for the allies to capture on their way out. That is, and, uh, that is, I, it really is like, well, but the story you, is this. I, it's such a traitorous move. <laughs> Uh, well, it's not a traitorous move. I mean, the officers are just told to like well, the no, government I, tells I them. Mean, I mean, the, the government order was a traitorous move. Well, of course. Yeah. But the the officers like carried out this retreat. And at the mean in the meantime, there were like communist cells arising within the German army. And there is one story I remember reading from a book about the German revolution and it was the the story was effectively that a some enlisted men who are communists had formed a, a Soviet, and the representatives of the Soviet came to the staff officers of you know not Ludendorff because he was out at this point, but Ludendorff's successor, and said, uh, "We demand that you give more power to the Soviets," and blah blah blah. And the staff officers were like, okay, <laughs> okay, nerd. Uh, <laughs> okay, nerd. And they just ushered, they brought him into the room yeah. where they had all of the plans laid out. They had the maps all over the tables, <laughs> the charts, Massive like flips. everything. They had the timetables of the trains and the wagon, like the wagon trains and the donkey trains and like where all the munitions were going to be dumped and how, what was going to happen if like, uh, Company Bravo from the 4th Fusilier Regiment of whatever, Wurttemberg, didn't show up <laughs> in the town of Bath at the right, or not, whatever, some Belgian town uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at the right time. And these, these, uh, so, these communists were like, they're still Germans. So they were like, oh, yeah, I mean, you, you guys got it. Like, we can't actually you know what like we'll we'll let you handle this problem we'll stand down uh and so they backed off but that's that's just it like if you don't understand the amount of like thought that has to go into a complex operation like that then you're not going to be able to pull it off and like to the nazis credit in 1923 they had a lot of men who understood that higher level planning Hmm. they had tons of men who understood the lower level just follow fucking orders and operate within a team. They, they had that. What they didn't have was some of the higher level contingency planning necessary to really take over the government. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. I think, um, I think one of the big issues that they didn't have, they didn't have with their backup plan, as they didn't even have one, right? Like there wasn't. Um, well, so what was the plan? The plan was. Oh, you run, you, oh I'll you, give you, I'll give you, you know the broad plan. Far the, bro- the broad <laughs> plan was this: so Hitler was trying to. Hitler was approached by Gustav von Kahr, mm. uh, who was effectively the dictator of Munich, with the idea of we are going to have a national revolution uh, and we're going to unite all the conservative parties and march on Berlin. And uh, Hitler, I guess, had never heard of Fed posting or didn't care. (laughs) And so he was like, all right, let's do it. It sounds cool. (laughs) We support. I give you my full support. And um, guns blazing. So Carr, K-A-H-R and Lusso and Sizer 
to uh, military officers who were like supporting Carr's government. They were having a big rally at the Bergenbroi Keller the night of November 8th, the purpose of which was to unite all the conservative factions. Nazis weren't invited. So the Nazis showed up anyway. Hitler showed up. And the, the story as it's told in the, the book I just referenced is that Hitler showed up with some of the other guys. They sat in the corner and listened to the speech. There are the speeches. And this is on the evening of the 8th. The speeches were boring as shit. <laughs> Gustav Vakar just droned on about monarchy or conservative values and blah, 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 blah. And at one point, Hitler was standing next to one of the columns that they had in this, in this big beer hall. So they have columns. And he was sort of leaning against it casually, holding a, a glass of beer. And allegedly, perhaps apocryphally, he was sipping on the beer, not not really drinking. Like he wasn't, you know, he he knew he had to stay sharp, but he was like pretending to kind of partake. Right, he was right. like sipping on the beer, and at one point he just smashed the the glass on the floor, and that was like the signal for all the other Nazis to rush the stage. <laughs> they rushed up to the stage. They had the whole place surround. They'd arranged beforehand and, and organized to have the whole Bergerbroi Keller surrounded with their men, and brought in a Lewis gun and (laughs) (laughs) posted it up on the podium and said, like, nobody move. We've got the place surrounded. Uh, Hitler shot a a pistol into the ceiling uh, to get everybody's attention. And they announced they're having a national revolution. Hitler then waved everybody into a side room, or at least the the leadership, right? Gustav von Carlos, Sizer, into the side room with a, you know, pointing pistol at them. And then tried to force them into a deal because he had he had uh, Field Marshal Ludendorff lined up with the putsch and Ludendorff was ready to lead the putsch and, and be the hero of Germany and save them from <laughs> uh, from Jewish international finance. Right. So like, come on, pussies, get in the car. We're going to Charlottesville or Berlin, <laughs> whatever. Uh, <laughs> that, that was that was the thing. Yeah. Um. What ended up happening? I mean, a number of things hap- went wrong in the plan. For one thing, Ludendorff seems to have been trying to hedge his bets. Now, actually, hopefully that's not the case. No, I don't think it is. Uh, reading this book, I think Ludendorff did nothing wrong and was totally honorable right. and was correct. Mm. The way he's portrayed in my favorite movie, Hitler: Rise of Evil. Mm. Uh, Ludendorff comes off as kind of a, a, a scumbag moron because he's not he, he shows up late. Well, he's yeah. he's really just trying to wait to see what it's happens. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, well, if the Nazis if the Nazis are winning, then like I'll join them. But like otherwise, I'm going to stay out of it and like try to he's playing both sides. Right. But that isn't that doesn't seem to be what actually happened. He was he was still late, which fucking excusable but like (laughs) he he wasn't playing both sides and the reason i say that is later when the shooting actually went down ludendorff forswore wearing the german uniform ever again because he was so angry at the police and the government he was like i will not wear my uniform ever again because fuck these people which i wish people had said that after charlottesville like can you imagine if any single cop had been like now, you know what, this is or, or after after the whole summer of 2020 or after January 6th, if any single 
military or police officer had said, you know what? This government is bullshit. I forswear wearing my uniform because this whole country is a joke. I would actually have respect for that. But like, yeah. Can they legally do Only that? Ludendorff. I guess, well, I don't know. Can you legally do that? Of course you can't legally do it. You fucking go to jail. But like, oh, well, damn, but yeah. fucking do it, bitch. That's like, fair. actually do it. Like, it's a principled thing to do. If enough people did it I mean, once, especially I... if you're retired. I mean, Ludendorff was, you know, obviously retired at this point. Right, right. Wearing exactly. the uniform for him was like, well, you symbolic. know. Symbolic. Symbolic, yeah. I think that's probably more of the thing, too. I mean, but imagine if, if, if all, like, you know, if the VA, you know, or the, uh, the, le- the American legions stopped wearing uniforms. You know, that would be the kind of thing that it would make the same. I guess it would make the same impact. Yeah, there you socially. go. Yes, as a, as a, as a a um, a protest against the government. Yeah. Especially after January sixth, why haven't yeah? Why haven't yeah. the American legions done that? There's also like police unions that can do you know parades uh, with all their retirees. Uh, I'm assuming they also have. You know, the 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 legions do that. Uh, I don't know. I think Shriners are another one that has to do something that's civil. Yeah, I mean, civil any work. any of these civic groups could yeah. actually just protest yeah, the government by saying, you know what, we're not wearing our uniforms anymore, and we refuse. We we're not going to wear these badges anymore. These these medals, anything. Yeah, I like. Think, but the problem with that would be incredibly crowd, powerful. Well, yeah, it would. But the the issue with with uh, reaching that crowd is that uh, that is the that generation, the ones that are retired, the ones that are kind of you know older. They are, they're the TV generation. Every bit of information they get comes from the television, and that's a, that's well, a lockdown. Yeah. Uh, medium, uh, they they know they know that something's wrong in this country oh, with chairs. They can, they can I, see I'll that. tell you what it is. It's honor culture. Mm. That's what was different about 1923 in that Germany versus thing. now. A man like Ludendorff, he saw his honor as being independent of the state. Yeah, and and you saw this like throughout the putsch. Like for instance. The uh, NSDAP was stashing weapons in a monastery <laughs> and they had gotten a verbal like, OK, from the monks to do so. Like, clearly, these monks saw it as moral and, and decent to promise I- illegally to stash <laughs> weapons. I'm not encouraging this, but like, I'm just saying, like, this is what happened historically. Th- th- historically, this yeah. is this is what happens. Like, they had high enough trust. Where if a man said, I'm going to stash these weapons for you, don't tell the fucking police <laughs> that it would just happen and that it could be relied upon. Like, it's it is it is no actual community. Right. It, yeah. There's actually community. There's actual uh, uh, an actual honor system where somebody's like, yeah, I'll, you know, if if uh, if I get snitched on, like, I guess I'm just going to jail. Oh, well. Right. Because well, also jail was you know much easier <laughs> back then. Well, but, not necessarily. I mean, well, true. That depends on what you were doing. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, you, know, you could get out. And... All right. So there's there's two things we've identified as enabling the beer hall putsch. You had a body of men who had a sort of tradition. They had protocols. They knew what to expect. They knew how to be organized almost spontaneously. I mean, it's not really spontaneously. It's it's actually years of getting yelled at and like f- right. <laughs> having to actually do shit like that might get you killed if you do it wrong. Mm-hmm. So they they had the background to organize and operate as a team. They also had the honor culture where people saw themselves as being distinct from the government and right. not totally. Uh, the only exception to that, though, is is Von Carr. I mean, the real exception, right? Because Von Carr, he was 
I don't want to say forced, but like essentially forced by the Nazis to swear in front of the entire beer hall that he was cool with the putsch and was going to go along with it. <laughs> and then he, when he got a, a moment to himself and was able to kind of sneak off by asking Ludendorff like for leave to, to go away, uh, Ludendorff, again, being super trusting and, and based in honor culture, was like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, you can go. <laughs> you you gave me your word. Yeah. <laughs> you gave me your word. Like, that's yeah. actually what he said. Yeah. And Ludendorff. And so Von Carr goes off and then like thinks about it. And it's kind of like, well, I was put under pressure by the government and the pol- or by the Nazis to swear that I was going to go with them. Cooked. And then he goes against them. Yes. So, so, so it's actually, I mean, Ludendorff was like so surprised. It never occurred to him that like a German officer would go against his word. Right. Because and, and that mean, like, if any, right. if any, if he can be blamed for anything, it's being too trusting. Yeah. Well, and that's and same thing with Hitler and a lot of the others. That's to be fair of the entirety of the German population throughout, you know, both of the wars. So. Yeah, I mean, right, the the whole Versailles Treaty, like, like, the Allies approach you with... They won't won't totally completely go against all of this shit. Oh, if we have a ceasefire, they won't continue uh, blockading our country for the entire center of Europe for another six or eight months. So, why would they do that? That's crazy. Right, because, yeah, that's... It's 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 the wider implications of what was going on at the time. That was the problem with how that mentality happened right like the the whole versailles treaty and everything that made it that made that made the push possible because we have you okay know, yeah because like what what builds up to lead because the, the push wasn't the only thing that happened at this point in time right oh as a result of like uh, the versailles treaty yeah of of what happened that you know the fall of the fall of the german reich the fall no, of the second yeah like the fall of the second reich happened there's a, a pretty good series on youtube i've just been watching recently called the great war uh, and it's by this guy who is kind of a larper. He has like a he has a, a great little setup where he's he's wearing his suspenders and his his shirt, and he's got a bunch of uh, sort of early twentieth century artifacts around him, and he explains <laughs> different aspects. I mean, he's got like tens or hundreds of thousands of views. I mean, he's he's a really popular YouTuber, and he clearly has a team supporting him. But he's got a, some videos on the uh, on the war itself, but he has a, a lot of videos on the post war period. Uh, everything from like the Gre- Greco-Turkish wars to uh, the the breakaway of the Caucasus from Russia and then the reabsorption of the Soviet Union to uh, the Treaty of Sevres uh, with Turkey and, and the, the German Revolution and all the stuff that was going on. I mean, really, the whole period of 19 November 1918 to say the early 20s mm. is in a way more historically impactful than the whole war itself uh yeah. or just like more stuff happened there you know like the war was just like a long stalemate and then finally when things started falling into place after the war yeah. is where like the real historical events happened there was so much that went on long like so like it is currently today because basically we're, we can kind of say that we're starting to be in world war three as it is yeah it's like we're i feel like we're we're still in world war one right now and yeah. analogically yeah like we're still waiting for things to happen right for, and it's like nothing ever happens why does nothing ever happen or or we're 
more darkly in you know, the in 1939. <laughs> you know. Yeah, possibly. Um, but that, I mean, the same thing happened right. after World War II. Like a, a ton happened between you know 45 and oh, 49. Yeah, like a, a just. A, but that's kind of the thing is. But even during the, these conflicts, right? <clears throat> the things that led up to this. So currently, uh, you don't have and in during either of the wars either it doesn't say you're in World War One or you're in World War Two, right? Like there's no headline during World War One or World War Two that says we're in World War One or we're in World War Two because mm-hmm. it just wasn't the mind like what? No. Right, you you, you don't know that it's gonna be over in nineteen eighteen. It might be over in nineteen sixteen. You don't even know that it started it, at the it point might be over like, in nineteen thirty for all you fucking know. They they looked at it the same way that it's currently being looked at is a bunch of different conflicts all over the place, right? Like just conflict here, conflict here, war here, war here. Um, kind of the way it's it's like now there's the war in Ukraine there's the the war in Israel there's the war here there's the war there and it's just like it's the same thing that they did then it's just like ten years from now when all this has died down they're gonna look at this as the World War Three period or something ridiculous right um, so the the point though is that um, the the lead up to all of like the push wasn't the only thing that bubbled up from the lead up to this of, of the previous like you know multi-year conflicts that were going on throughout europe's tumultuous past i mean you're talking about the end of the 1800s leading up to the bowling over into world war well sure there was the um there was the german revolution of 1919 the spartacist uprising in berlin right the fry you know all the fry corps organizations there was the the brief communist takeover of munich and was it 1919 1920 somewhere around there um there's a lot of stuff that happened yeah, it was continuous. There was this constant roiling throughout Europe, right? This revolutionary spirit that had kind of really never settled down from France uh, at the time, you know, like a hundred years before that. And it was you're still seeing this, this reeling kind of rippling effect that's happening throughout Europe, um, which is also why you know you would have these people that in Munich specifically at the time why they would want to have or why there was such a, a huge division of factions like why there were like a bajillion different factions throughout Munich that they would need to unite in the first place okay, like, I why, mean, sure there, why there, wasn't Munich there all was the con- right there was like the communists there were the anarchists there were I mean there, what you're saying the right-wing factions you had the national socialists you had uh various other groups under different names that were militarist right-wing right. groups maybe maybe not nazi you had you had monarchist groups the monarchists and the separatists were the same basically yeah right because obviously they wanted to return to becoming their own, you know to return to being bavaria as a monarchy but at the same time um that wasn't like they 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 represented your conservative groups so they had like the least action effectively that's also why the monarchy kind of just fell out of favor in the first place is because they kind of just went went with the way of inaction right. uh, towards their inevitable demise. Unfortunately, with, with Ludwig, we spoke about him in an earlier episode or whatever. I think, oh, last episode we spoke about Ludwig getting murdered. Um, just basically by taking it, it's just like, oh, I will go with the guards, you know, kind of thing, you know, and just be all woe is me writing. It was I mean, kind of what what uh villain the second did too yeah. on you know november well i guess it was november 9th 1918 it was exactly five years before the putsch when he got on a train and fled to the yeah. netherlands yeah yeah so you know it's it's this kind of apathy type of thing of just like and it is kind of nihilistic in in the sense of um 
an aristocratic type of nihilism where they're just like, oh, woe is me, and they just all flee off and die, basically. Uh, but but that's what, who was um, that's who was being advocated for as far as the separatist groups that Hitler was advocating against so much that he wrote about. Um, and it's not that Hitler was like you know 100 percent oh hate hate the the monarchy kind of thing. It's just that he really hated the fact that that faction was trying to separate Bavaria from the rest mm-hmm. of Germany at the time. Yeah, I know and, that feel, right? Yeah, and you know, like, like people in America being like, oh, what this group should break away, that group should break away. It's like, oh, fuck you. No. No. <laughs> no, God damn it, we want it all. Well, you know, and so, and and that comes down to like, what Oh, I just want to have like my own like state where we're separate and free from Jewish control. It's like, no, you don't get that. Not only do you not get, not only is that not like moral, it's also just not practical. Mm. I know, like, like with with the Bavarians or any other group in Germany in 1919, like yeah. breaking away from the Reich and then pursuing your own separate destiny. Can you imagine if Bavaria had broken away in 1919 as a <laughs> communist state, and then like, oh, we're going to side with the Russians or with the British, and they'll fly in uh, food for us, and then we'll, we'll be prosperous and free and happy. It's like, no, you're just going to be their bitch state, and you're going to be their slave, and they won't even give you food. I think what what the the funnier or more interesting I think alternate history would be what if von Kahr like jujitsued Hitler and took the gun from him right <laughs> and turned the putsch around into a monarchist revolution instead and they actually turned out with it you mean if he'd gone from like low energy to high energy yeah just like it like just snapped it was just like that was that was it right like because we don't know how mundane his life was before all this. And, like, if, if he even had, you know, like, a, a happy life at home. Yeah, nobody's ever heard of, like, Gustav von Kahr basically didn't exist <laughs> before uh, November 8th, 1923, or after <laughs> the end of the trial. Like, he's just a non-entity. Right. So, imagine, like, this is, like, his, his one moment in time, right? It, it, it literally is. He, it, yeah. And so, he snaps, and he, he turns the revolution around or whatever, right? And he just, it was like Mike Pence on January 6th. <laughs> Except, except he turns it around for himself. Like then Pence takes over, right? So Pence takes over, except it's it's Von Carr, and then they actually separate and go monarchist or whatever, right? And become like a, a Catholic monarchy in this part of Europe, which would have been the, the gayest the goal shit ever. Yeah, that would have been the goal of it, right? So that Bavaria, the literal like AIDS government of Munich. It would have been very interesting to see how that would play out. It would have been. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been so gay. Because like, but but the thing is, is that would have driven a wedge. The, the the real big reason Hitler didn't want this to happen is because that would have driven a, an indefinite wedge between Austria and Germany. Mm-hmm. That would have been it because that's traditionally that's been the traditional pivot state between Austria and a a unified German state. Um, has been Bavaria, and so Bavaria Bavaria is the linchpin. That's that's like the the keystone of the German states. And so Hitler couldn't afford to have the separatists take power, which is why he specifically targeted von Kahr's thing. Is because that's it. That's that's the separatist. Right. Group. Hitler wanted an integrated German state, which right. is reasonable. Like just like we want an integrated white state. Ooh, spicy. Well, I mean, you know, not included <laughs> as we discussed in our our episode about like the formation of a people. Right, not yeah. not including. Just because you're white doesn't mean you're part of the the group the state the state <laughs> the, this this state i mean the russians are their own separate thing and and it would be we would be making a claim on 
on Russian territory if we were to say that the Russians are part of our group. Right. And that's not the goal. Right. If sure. we're, you know, it's 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 sort of counterintuitive. But by saying the Russians are a separate group, you're actually saying we are not making a military territorial claim on any part of Russia. Right. As compared to the yeah, rather than but like we are make we are definitely making a military territorial claim on Western Europe. Yes. And America and Canada and Australia. Ooh. <laughs> All of it. And that other funny country next to Australia that I that causes me extra syllables to have to say them, but you know who I'm talking about. New Zealand. Yeah, those fuckers. <laughs> exactly. They have a prehistoric. New Zealand and Old Zealand. Like all of it. Isn't that in Holland? Yes, yes. It's, okay. <laughs> it's called Zealand. Or Denmark. I don't know. Something. Same same thing. Yeah. Whatever. One of those strange strange places that No, we love you guys. Um but eh. no, probably not, but I I take that back actually. But <laughs> Yeah, fuck them. Fuck them. Um Join or die. But uh no, so the the big reason why Hitler really honestly didn't want the separatist group to to succeed in any way, shape or form more so than the others is because of the linchpin that was Bavaria to this German austrian axis right because um, his his home would have been like basically brought his his home as an austro as a austro bavarian person yeah. from brano on in, um in mm. he would have been brought into this new state and his service in the german army in world war one would be meaningless and like yes like from a personal point of view hitler is entirely correct as i mean he is in everything but like <laughs> uh, from a personal point of view i completely understand hitler yep. yes I mean, I've been thinking about this lately, too, myself. Like, I don't have a homeland. I don't have anybody. Spice. I don't have anybody I went to high school with. I don't have anybody in my community. I go back to my community. I mean, I, I do often enough. I don't know anybody there. Everybody's moved away. Like, there is no homeland. Yeah. Your family, like, whatever. Like, I have nowhere to run away to. Like, a lot of people have somewhere to run away to. I think Hitler was in the same position. Mm. He didn't have anywhere to run away to. He needed national revolution of the entire German people, or he was just going to, I don't know, Fade away. have to live in a homeless shelter and paint his paintings and listen to Wagner on, like, a shitty beat-up old record. Based, and he wasn't willing to <laughs> and he wasn't willing to settle for that like yeah. fuck that yeah fuck that it's fucking gay yeah that'd be that'd be pretty i don't know i feel like that would just get old after a while that poor place but he would have faded into nothing and that's the problem that would have been the end no more hitler um but that's the thing is everything in evolution needs pressures and that was hitler's pressure was this this need for the german state to unify yeah you know in order to give himself this, and I, and I think that's where I, to bring it to bring it into the present. I think that's where we all we all are now as well. Is we need we we now as a group, yes, as compared to before, we're as individuals. And he, I think this is an interesting comparison too. It's just if we're talking about, we can make this into a broader perspective because this is kind of this 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 talks. Let's talk about the big macro perspective of what happened here and what the Third Reich actually was. Okay, and it is a european spanning empire and let's compare hitler to his contemporaries in that field which are emperors right alexander napoleon 
These men are of the same caliber, right? Yeah. In the same sense. And so... Contemporaries in the Spanglerian sense. Right, right. You know, yeah. They didn't literally live at the same time, well, but no, they... of course not. They but. lived at the same time respective to their Rem- civilization's relative development. Yeah, and they're out... And yes. They're, and they're being outside yes. of time. Yes, you're right. You're right. You're fucking <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> and, they're, and they're being outside of time. They are contemporaries, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the mm-hmm. deal. Um, and so, they're... Yeah, so they... Um, Damn. <laughs> so Hitler, uh, relative yeah. to say Alexander or right. Napoleon, and, and Napoleon. So like, as far as is what this this meant is that we were talking about the need to find a home, right? Uh, and this this kind of thing that drove Hitler into he, he didn't have a specific. He was kind of like a wanderer in a sense, as you were saying, right? He all everybody kind of left where he was going. How that's very similar to these other conquerors, right? These other men of of great of great. I guess worth is like while they were born into riches in some cases like Alexander or anything else like that, it, they didn't really fit in or didn't feel like they belonged in these places because they actually really didn't. They were men outside of time, right? If we're going to get into the Evolian sense, right? We're talking, you know, some mm-hmm. Serrano and weird mystical things here uh, as we're on a centennial uh, kick, but because they existed outside of these uh, temporal constraints, they were, never really satisfied with being in one specific place at one point in time. They had to, they, they were these great unifying forces. Right. Right. Um, and so Hitler needed Germany to be united in the same sense that Alexander needed to conquer the known world in the same sense that Napoleon needed to conquer Europe in the sense that these men had no other purpose. Um, you know, like again, what would, what would Napoleon have done if he had just become a, a, you know, like a Sardinian nationalist or something? Yeah, it would have been like, like or like, Corsican, Corsican nationalists. Like, yeah, yeah, it would have been gay and stupid. You know, like he was just like, oh, that, that's what he becomes known for for the rest of his life is that he took over an island or whatever, and then you know, twenty years later, the French kings come back and repress it <laughs> or something. Um, you know, or or what happened? What would have happened uh, if Alexander uh, actually did care to take on uh, Diogenes as like a mentor and was like, you know what, fuck conquest, I'm gonna sit here and beat up in public with this guy. Like and that was the, that was the end. Look, of the Alexander, was... Alexander had the greatest teacher you could possibly have, and that's Aristotle. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. So with that. you know, I, like I love and respect Diogenes. I mean, I I love the the story of I've since I was a kid. I love this. The story of Alexander comes out Diogenes, and says Diogenes, like, what can I give you? And yeah. Diogenes says, stand a little out of my son, <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's it's. It's both modest, but it's also incredibly insulting. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. And but that's but that's the thing is like imagine though that if if he had just forsaken Aristotle's tyranny and just went and just fucked off there, there would be there would have been no unifying force of of the Near East right at the time, um, or of the ancient world. There would have been this, this climactic aspect of the ancient world would have never happened. Um, so. Did Alexander really feel like he was at home if he had so readily left it and just died out in the wilderness? Think about it. I mean, like, think about how how much did Hitler really care about Brownow? He didn't go build his 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 Berghof there, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, he went to the Obersalzburg, not far away, true, but at the same time, he chose a place that to him felt more like home, right? Like things that he really identified with. Uh, the same thing with Alexander. I think Alexander was an absolute like Persia file. 
uh, even though he destroyed yeah, 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 Persepolis, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah like <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, um, certainly seems that way. You know, and he and I think that that's why he wanted to go off and just find his 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 empire, effectively forge his way as a, as a force of nature, as a force in time, uh, out in the east in the Orient. And the only thing that stopped it was the you know, the what what was it the, the Great Indus River, uh, and that. Well, that, yeah, and 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 his men being like. Hey, sir, we don't want to, like, do a mutiny or, or anything, but could you please consider taking us home at some point? Like, we really love you and we're loyal to you on to death and we think we've proven that. And Alexander spurred out and they were like, no, no, ah, crucify them. Yeah, how raw is that, though? Yeah, Alex, yeah. yeah. He was losing it towards the end, though. Alcohol, I, 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 yeah. Alcoholism and, and I mean, I, I really stuff. think his men had a point at it's yeah. like, could we maybe cycle out and like get somebody else to do this? Like, if you want to conquer the world, like, great. But yeah, like, <laughs> like we've done our bit we up to, to now. Home. Yeah, <laughs> we've conquered. <laughs> Haven't seen our, our family. You know, I don't. I hate to be a family cuck because. Yeah, but still. But still, like. You haven't seen your family in ten or and he twelve took the years. Bulk of the population, like with him. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you kind of have to replenish that, like you know. But that's and that's look at the look at the similarities to these men and taking the bulk of the population of the males, you know, of France or of Greece, you know, you know, or of um of Germany. Uh, you you have this this same kind of destiny to it where. The beer hall putsch was this, you know, you have like these, these early, like, I guess, origin story aspects to these characters, right? Um, with the, uh, with Alexander, you have, um, I don't know, what was you? The Bacalophalius, the horse yeah, story. Is that what you're? Probably that would, I would imagine is the one that that's like the, the, his, his big origin, uh, or for Napoleon, it would have been, uh, Egypt, right? Or, uh, well, maybe the battle the battles in Italy as well. I mean, right? Yeah, but like the, the one at the bridge was it Toulouse at the bridge or? Oh, yeah. I guess I, actually I probably shouldn't put a specific label on any of these things. The point is that there are there are like these founding moments in the 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 origin buildup of the character, right? Uh, in, in these because th- that's what that's what these these characters of legend have kind of become to us as 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 you know white people of European descent is that these are legends. Our legends are are alexander or napoleon or hitler at this point right as far as great conquerors and and uh men of action who have tried to unify the people under one banner uh at some point in time you know whether or not we agree with you know one view or the other of it the point is is that it's the same the same with any of the caesars right or i guess i don't know who would probably be the who would be who who gets who gets the title of the greatest roman emperor i think that julius caesar oh right okay i mean you know not technically, well, technically, right. uh, <laughs> well, not an actually. emperor or whatever. No, Caesar, 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 Caesar is Caesar, Caesar because Caesar. he's Caesar. Right. Okay. Yeah. So Caesar then is that aspect then for that point in time during you know the the attempts to to rise up and and gain a foothold of all of Europe. Um, so these men have transitioned at this point into into mythos and legend, and so seeing their impact on a on a on a more macro scale uh as far as you know what what they're what they've done to to the future of europe even like after the mat each time that these the, these titans of time have presented themselves in european history the maps of europe have altered afterwards right like the maps to- are radically altered after these guys have come into play like after napoleon 
map the map just goes berserk different uh after hitler total total change of 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 like all of eastern europe just gets completely rewritten right um yeah after alexander there weren't there wasn't basically a map in certain parts of the world (laughs) that he created them you know but with the beer hall putsch you know the the key thing about it i mean before i knew much about nazis and before i was really an anti-semite i saw it as sort of a strange incident in hitler's past Mm. but it really was much much more than that it was the form and and the nazis understood this it was the formative point in their whole movement right so because it creates a relic too if we're talking about mythos well without the beer hall putsch like they actually were it it was possible for the nazi movement and for their coalition partners to have taken power in Germany in 1923. That was not outside of possibility. That could have happened. Like, if, if a few things had broken differently, if, like, uh, Rome hadn't been surrounded at the War Department uh, and, or had broken out or had, had negotiated differently, or if uh, Ludendorff hadn't let Gustav von Cargo, if any number of things had happened differently you might have seen the police and the people go over to Hitler and the putsch. And then... For the Bavarian government. Because they actually did have a plan for a full march on Berlin. They actually could have had a sort of Napoleon returns from Elba moment where they like march (laughs) all the way on the capital. Yeah. And it's like they had... They had all the stuff ready to go and it could have turned out very differently. It might have actually resulted in, in a national revolution. That national revolution wouldn't really have been the Nazi national socialist revolution right. that we know and love. It would have been a totally different situation entirely. Like it just that's it would have. I don't even know how you would. It you would have been a reactionary like coalition taking power, throwing off Versailles, and perhaps getting smashed by the Western Allies. It might have been more chaotic. Very quickly, and, yeah, yeah, instigated some kind of like, you know invasion force, which would have been. I mean, absolutely possible considering the Ruhr was already, you know, occupied almost at the time, wasn't it? So, yeah. Um, you know, so they could have just sent, sent in their, their, les soldats africains. Les noirs. Yeah, the noir, all the, all the noirs that were occupying the Ruhr, unfortunately, uh, they could have just sent those troops in or whatever and, and squashed Berlin with its no military force whatsoever. Um, but the thing is, is that, you're right it did create a defining moment in the party's you know history effectively it's it's like it's you know religious dogma uh by creating martyrs and by yep. creating a relic right the blood fauna yeah um and obviously all religions have to have some form of you know martyrdom situation have to have you know re- relics and things things um and then your prophet <laughs> you know yeah. you have it's a whole it's a whole situation um and it creates and it's it is on it's not unlike um these and i don't want to say, i don't like the word cult of personality because it sounds like a very trivial thing right it, it it's very mundane yeah hitler's um, was not a cult of personality no it wasn't um, hitler's was a cult of greatness right exactly and that's kind of like the, the 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 term cult should not be noted uh as in an academic sense as being negative uh in just for our listeners no, sake. cults only um, suck when they're led by shitty people <laughs> or like kool-aid is the end yeah <laughs> but you know like, like when a cult is led by hitler it's awesome you know like, like, well, anybody can tell cults, the difference you know yeah so like cults are cults are just like a concept of, of religious thing but like the cult of 
the cult of of Hitler effectively was able to be created out of out of that. So he went to jail and you know whatever wrote Mein Kampf and all that other fun stuff. No, the, I mean the, what the what, what, men, what, what what established Hitler was the fact that he didn't cuck during the trial. Right. Like Hitler being like he was thrown down onto the ground by his bodyguard, dislocated his shoulder, hit out for a couple days, and then was arrested. Like that's not all terribly heroic. That's not to say that Hitler was a coward or something. Right. Like far braver men have done far more cowardly things. What it is to say is that like, yeah, when when like your side is losing, like everyone's running. Achilles is fucking running away <laughs> when like his side is broken. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. But it's what you do. It's the moral bravery. Like mm. Hitler, like by luck, didn't get shot by a bullet. Right. He had the moral bravery to stand up to bullets. Other guys did get shot. Goering got shot. The other um, and and horribly wounded and spent the rest of his life dealing with that one. Yeah. The other uh, sixteen Nazis who were killed there, like they were willing to stand up and, and get shot, and they died for it. Uh, Hitler didn't, thank God. But how he redeemed himself by not you know for not getting killed because like you know you. He did expose himself to that, but like he didn't, you know, stand back up and say, like, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. Right. Uh, he did run away, but he. He made up for it by standing up for his position in court when nobody else was willing to do it. And actually, I would like to do an entire show on the trial of Adolf Hitler, because I think it is actually the more important fact of the Beer Hall Putsch. You could do a the, whole series on that. The, the Beer Hall Putsch <laughs> itself was like cool and is of course the like moment of action it's the thing that everybody remembers but like really the moral fortitude and toughness that it took to stick out the trial and then to argue at trial when you're being tried for high treason that like (laughs) um to argue it was not i who betrayed the state it was the november criminals (laughs) and he wasn't wrong though right you're obviously not wrong which is and like people have this notion that um, you know, liberals will say or, or communists will say, well, Hitler, Hitler knew he was going to get off a trial. Bull fucking shit. That's bullshit. No, bullshit. bullshit. He did not. The only the reason that he got a light sentence is because what he was saying was fucking true. Yeah. And and, and popular there because it was true. It was popular. Mm. He was saying he was actually standing up to the state, standing up to everyone, willing to risk his life on it. Mm-hmm. not only in the streets but in trial as well he did it and the state you know whatever the judge's personal sympathies might have been if the if, if the state had been going the other way if, and if popular opinion had been going another way this, the judge absolutely would have cucked and would have been like well you're 50 years in prison right but because of that like that mood that was created because of hitler's like moral toughness you had a different situation yeah. He created that situation. When, but that's that's the whole point of him being a, a, a mover in time, right? Is well, of course, he, yeah. He is he is the avatar, as a lot, a lot of people would say about him. Um, and I think that that's kind of interesting, though. Like, you, it is 100 years to the day after this event happened um, in time. And it's the fact that we're still talking about it 100 years afterwards. Uh, and, and a lot of people are actually talking about it, it 100 years afterwards. The point is, is that this event had been so significant that it still, you know, uh, 
it, it, it still uh, requires discourse about yeah, in a way it was basis. it was far more significant than pretty much anything else that happened in germany between 1918 and 1933 right because it's i mean, I mean you, you could make arguments for some of the other like Pushes and coups, but I I think 1923 Munich was that that was the most important thing, and I think the, the reason why it was the most important is because another it on a retrospect thing, but to the people at the time, uh, is that there was such an excessive show of violence, uh, and towards like a large group of veterans, it was a big deal. Like that, the people didn't, you know, people didn't like to spit on, you know, their veterans like that. It's not yeah. Like oh, speaking of which, did, did you know the cop who was in charge of the police that fired on the marching, uh, you know, national socialists was the brother of Hitler's regiment commander. Ouch. In World War One. Mm. <laughs> what a faggot. Like, Mm. <laughs> how come he wasn't in our dante's inferno episode <laughs> what level of betrayal is that he's a shit yeah i know yeah. right so but yeah that's... and and it actually the other thing i was going to say like mm-hmm. regarding like the nazis you know marching through the streets and coming up on these police forces they came up on a police force at ludwig's uh bridge uh, over the the river and those guys stood aside they actually weren't willing to fire on the Nazis. So, like, this whole thing wasn't as pie in the sky as you'd imagine. Like, you're going to get a few, uh, what do we call them? Mexican standoffs. Yeah. You're going <laughs> to get maybe a few Mexican standoffs where it's like people's hands are shaking on the trigger and you're waiting. Is some, Who's going to shoot first? And then, and then somebody drops their weapon and then it's like, Hooray! (laughs) Just like, um, you've seen that movie Waterloo with, uh, about Napoleon. Oh, yeah. (laughs) When he comes back from Elba and he, like, confronts Marshal Ney and, and, and whatever, uh, army has been set against him. in the 70s? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Napoleon walks up and, like, the men are about to shoot him and he's like, would you kill your emperor? (laughs) 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 And the men, like, can't do it and so they side with him. Like, that that could have happened. (laughs) That could have happened in 1923 in, in Germany. Yeah. With, like, all these cops being confronted with fucking Ludendorff. I mean, how much closer can you get to Napoleon than Ludendorff? I mean, I guess Hindenburg, maybe? Well, the problem is, is that they didn't, they tried to include Ludendorff in the plan. They should just use him as a parade item. That's what they fucked up. They should, they like, he should have just been a figurehead. They could have used him. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I don't know. You would think that the mastermind of, you know, the Battle of Tannenberg would be able to, like, participate on planning. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I would assume. Right, but at the same wrongly, time, like, you're right. You're, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you're you know, like, you're wrong here. He, he just, uh, I, but I can understand why they did that. I I can see why they would like. Yeah, he should be involved in planning, but he himself should not be having to execute those plans. He needs to be in. He like, should have been the chief of staff, not the commander. He, he should, Hitler Hitler should have been the commander. Have, no, no, no. I mean, Ludendorff should have been the hood ornament. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, no, no, no. You know, they parade him in like you know, like on a on the, a the problem. The, the, actually, I think we're actually we're discovering another problem here. Mm. The real problem is that Hitler didn't have the stature to carry out this coup. Mm. If Hitler had ha- had a higher national stature, and Ludendorff had been like willing to acknowledge Hitler's like superior stature, stature, yeah, 
you know, one can understand why Hitler or why Ludendorff would not have done that in 1923 because Hitler was a fucking nobody. Right. Yeah. And Ludendorff was the hero of Tannenberg and, and countless battles. And, and he, like, he was yeah. a god. Yeah. So one, one can understand why why Ludendorff didn't like defer to Hitler. Right. But if Hitler's stature had been higher and he had been able to command the respect of Ludendorff and assign him to being like the chief of staff or whatever, then maybe you might have had that like beautiful moment where where like Ludendorff actually does the contingency planning because he's not an idiot like <laughs> like <laughs> like whatever Bavarian was doing it and yeah. uh and Hitler <laughs> is able to be the figurehead and lead the men through the police and like rally the police to him and then march on Berlin but but I don't know like like we we're saying even if they had had carried out the coup then it, the failure was necessary to build a better national socialist movement in the future yeah. and then to have a true national socialist government and, and i think hitler recognized this because in later talks like with mussolini mussolini as you remember came to power fairly quickly with the march on rome yes like that only two years after the end of world war one and the italians are like in rome yeah now this also inspired hitler no, as noted by him. Oh, well. yeah, of course. Yeah. But the problem with the March on Rome is that the fascist movement in Italy had taken power too quickly and hadn't properly uh, consolidated subordinate units. And they had to make a lot of alliances. And if the NSDAP had done the same thing in 1923, one can imagine a, an analogous outcome. Yeah. Whereas the fact that it took it, it, they had to build up their own internal support for another 10 years it before they could come to power. and not national socialists. Sure. Yes. You know, I feel like that's, I think Hitler understood that as well. As the you, difference as being said. that a national socialist government is a, not a corporatist government, right. like not a, a government that relies on outside support, but relies only on its own internal support right. from the people. Basically, you know, yeah. it's regarding its, it's, economic workings and whatnot for sure um and i think hitler was worried i think i don't know if i don't think i i wonder if hitler was just young and you know he just had ambition uh at that time and he was kind of frustrated with something or you know again inspired by mussolini doing it not too too far before maybe thinking that we could they could possibly pull it off because there's no way he foresaw well i think that's you know, part of it but i think it's also the fact that hitler he he sort of had to move just because he had been preaching revolution and talking about how evil and screwed up the Weimar government was. I guess he had he'd been, he'd been talking a lot of shit. <laughs> and, if he, and if he didn't follow up his words with action, people yeah. would just be like, oh, you're Nick Fuentes. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, right? Yeah. So. All right. Well, then. So then or hit, you're Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump talks. So he's Donald Trump says it. like the government's illegitimate all the time, but like he doesn't do anything about it. Yeah, he just makes it worse. He's a piece of shit. Yeah, right. exactly. So okay, so then Hitler had to basically put his money where his mouth was. Yeah, exactly. I so maybe he didn't have an option but to partake in it. Maybe yeah. he honestly didn't want it to have a revolution at that point in time. Yeah, he might have thought it was premature, but yeah, I'm. Who knows? I mean, I think we'll ever know if he actually thought that. But no, of course not. In, in a way, like it follows that maybe it was premature and maybe he knew that yeah but he just had to run with it because otherwise you know 
he'd be a cuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so <laughs> he, he had he had to, he had to follow through. So I think that's yeah, I think that's that's probably where it was at is that he might have actually had to just kind of follow through with it because he he would have known. Um, un, to be fair, unless he was still at the time, um, developing his his worldview because again his the refinement of national socialism while it was there there's a lot of, of precursor information for it leading up to that point perhaps he he perhaps he hadn't really defined it from fascism in his mind yet to the point where he would have been at least okay with something yeah, similar well, to that he, had, happening. he hadn't codified it in a book yet right exactly. so that that's one thing like yeah it's and you kind of like going to prison for a revolutionary isn't necessarily the worst thing mm. because it gives you time to write a book. Right. <laughs> and every you, you need to write a book. If you don't write the damn book, it it's like, well, what what you, why'd you go to jail? Yeah. Well, right, no, it's you have to you have to explain your positive position. You have to explain what what is it that I want to do yeah. that is different from what's currently going on. And you you can only do that from a position of criticism for so long. Like you can criticize you need to criticize the, the existing system, but like, in order to say, well, I have an alternative. You need to write it down in a book, yeah, uh, and, and present it comprehensively, or at least in some kind of like organized fashion. And say, all right, this is our this is our our program. This is why all this makes sense, right? And we're not going to debate on this because this is the deal. No, because debating is ridiculous, and debating uh, debating presupposes that you have some sort of agreement with the other side right where they're going to be honest in their criticisms and if you're dealing with like jews or communists obviously that's not the case so debating stupid but you have to you still have to present your worldview in like a coherent and comprehensive fashion so people can kind of like it's it's what gaming uh what do they call uh what game people who do game theory no i'm talking about like Rouge or uh, Chateau Artiste oh. approach artists. Oh, oh game artists. Um, oh, oh, um, dudes who like to hit on girls a lot. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's it's what they call the reframe, right? You have to reframe. You can't just pick be ar- artists. Yeah, pickup artists. That's it. You can't just be arguing against liberalism all the time. You have to reframe. This is our position, right? And then you have to get people to understand that. And then rather than arguing from the position of well, we disagree with you. It's like, no, this is the fucking truth. You come at me. Right. And that's what he was able to do writing Mein Kampf because he was able to spend 10 months in a uh, uh, pretty cushy prison just hanging out. Yeah, it's a nice castle. <laughs> so I want to go back to the organizational problem because I think that's actually the most interesting aspect of the the uh, the Hitler putsch. And if we think about what we were saying earlier about how you've got the Hitler putsch was able to come off even as well as it had because you had honor culture and you had a lot of guys who had a common background in the military. And so they they just understood how shit gets done. And it didn't have to be explained to them. It didn't have to be like it, it was already in their heads and it could even the guys who hadn't been in the military could be kind of like passed on to them as a matter of tradition. Their older brothers, their older comrades knew how to do any given thing and then expected that of the younger men. And tradition is great because it allows like that condition of stasis to continue 
Um, unfortunately, tradition is bad because it doesn't allow you to like improve your methods. But as regarding our movement, um, I think I've said this before, but Charlottesville really was the high point of organizational competence. Now, obviously, there were many, many, many problems. But that being said, the I think Charlottesville was could have been far more of a disaster. And I think far more people, I think actually a shit ton of people would have been killed uh, at Charlottesville if it had been conducted with anything less than the professionalism that it was. And that was solely a result of the high proportion of dudes at Charlottesville um, who knew what the fuck they were doing. And I think the system has done a very good job of scaring off people like that uh, in the intervening years. And I think one, one could make the same uh, sort of statement about January 6th. Like, a lot of the elements... I mean, obviously, in neither case, Charlottesville nor January 6th, was everything totally centrally planned and organized. So, like, that should should be understood from the get-go. But certain elements of both of these events were planned and organized. And they were only able to be so because of the common understanding and the common background of the people involved. If you get a bunch of people together who don't have that common background, you get total chaos and like inability to organize. So I was thinking about this particularly recently because I went to the Palestine rally uh, this last weekend in DC. Oh, which was interesting. It was huge. It was at least 30,000 people. I mean, it was whole city blocks just full of people. And a lot of them Arabs, a lot of them Muslims, a few kind of commie types here and there, like some blacks, some Hispanics, like some other people, but like mostly Muslims. But the thing is, this entire thing was organized by the communists. I mean, I can't prove it to you exactly with these lefty things. It's always sort of hard to tell. Yeah. Who really, who's putting in the money, who's doing the organizing. It's always like, oh, a coalition of groups, XYZ, BTF, blah, right. blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's a zillion different things. But it was quite clear that the communists had organized it and it was the communist Jews who were organizing it. Right. And it was also quite clear that most of the people there don't fucking care about Jews and had no idea who was organizing it and were simply there because they were like, Death to Israel is their <laughs> position. So it was really, um, I mean, of course, it's interesting that like the communists are able to organize something like this. Like you're you're playing on easy mode when like the police won't attack you and uh, like uh, another political faction won't like attack you in the streets. Like it's easy to organize hundreds of thousands of people and right. it doesn't even cost that much. Uh, <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> it really doesn't. No. Um, it's only hard when you're, you're playing on Nazi mode where it's like, okay, well you have to be looking out for traitors everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to be looking out for like feds, uh, feds traitors, like uh, whatever. The system everywhere. itself will just come crashing down upon you. With, everywhere. Like, every yeah thing that they've got yeah yeah antifa will fight you <laughs> yeah um you know so but it was interesting because i feel like one of the sort of main problems we have is that we're not like the jews are very good at reaching out to other groups 
this is actually their the key to their power is reaching out to other groups and then presenting themselves as not gonna well as leaders but like not as leaders like we're the leaders but we're not the leaders like we're They're the oppressed minority we're willing to we're part. also an oppressed minority and we're willing to help you see your goals but unspoken is in helping you to see your goals you're going to help us like achieve ultimate power because they're <laughs> fucking evil yeah um, achieve ultimate power it's true but you know why aren't we competing on this level like why aren't we competing for because we're benevolent black <laughs> arab hispanic chinese whatever the fuck interest if we look at uh one of the big ss thi- did didn't they <laughs> yeah, well of course i mean the nazis did one of the big like talking points of a lot of these uh, speeches at the rally was all about inviting up different ethnic groups like the Filipinos or the Koreans. And then the Filipinos and the Koreans talked about imperialism. And like all of this is, you know, communist bullshit rhetoric. Right. But the underlying idea is that white people did this. Right. It, it's on, it was unspoken. Like they were tasteful enough not to talk about white supremacy. But it was unspoken that white people did this. Ignoring, of course, the fact that like Jews actually control all of America. And many of the people in the audience fucking know that. Oh, yeah. And they are willing to hear that message. Like these people are willing to hear that message, which is what's crazy about this to me. Uh, The system has set it up so perfectly that if one Haji stood up and started saying it's a fucking Jews, the other Hajis would have been like, yeah, yeah, Habibi. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, brother, you are right. <laughs> they, yeah, that would have been the, but they, but they control it. Yeah, exactly. They control who gets the mic. That's the problem. Yeah, the the spiciest take I I heard was one girl talking about the martyrs, and it's like, yeah, of course, you know, yeah. all support to the martyrs, and uh, you know, death to Israel and stuff, death to international Jewish finance. Like the only way we're going to have any progress in civilization in general and any establishment of our rights is with the total destruction of international Jewish finance. This this should be obvious. Like any withdrawal from the system is only going to be defeated by international Jewish finance. Yeah, if we want to uh, have an evolution of our civilizations as a species or a multitude of species, we have to remove ourselves of parasites. It's called planetary hygiene. Well, that's uh, yeah, that's that's one way to put it, and yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, you know, but to your point though, uh, the putsch, hundredth <laughs> anniversary this today, and I know we're I know we're a bit late talking we're about just this. Beating this dead horse. I know we're a bit late talking about it today, but uh, we had to talk about it at least a little bit. Yeah, it it does it and it does it does deserve to be mentioned as a place in at this point in time now moving forward european mythos uh, as far as our history is concerned um it is it's part of that it is it is an event that happened that changed the course of the way european civilization would ever be well and it's really like it's almost hard to think that it's been already 100 years it feels far more recent than that well that's because time stops i mean all of us well all of us can remember 10 years ago uh yeah what's so big about a hundredth anniversary is it's sort of the symbolic like point where you say okay everybody who actually remembers this is dead basically yeah basically yeah yeah so nobody 
effectively nobody alive today remembers this event. Yeah. But we uh, like in person, like from their own eyes. But we remember it because even though none of us actually saw it and nobody we know even saw it. Right. And nobody who's alive saw it. It's still not only as an inspiration, but it has an effect on yeah. us. But that's that's the point of it being mythos at this point, or you know, a, a founding building block in our mythos, right? As a people, if we're going to talk about, you know, tie this into previous episodes about what is a people, and so it was the first. I mean, it was the first real, it was the first explicit stand against international Jewish finance. I think you could argue. I mean, I, I well, I know they weren't saying we're, we're we're their only claim was we're taking over Germany, but. And, you, you know, also the, the Kaiser's government fighting against the world in World War One. you could say, well, that was a stand against international Jewish finance. And it's like, yes, it, it was all, in all a way. The, the it, it, was Germany, <laughs> it was Germany's fight in World War One to be a fight against international Jewish finance. Not because they wanted it to be, but because that's just what it was. Yeah. Um, but just in but general, I, outside of itself, I think that it was it, – it just symbolizes a boiling over point that – our race has not ever gone back from it's it's a singular point in time in history that we can point to of like right here this is this is the turning point uh and very rarely do we get to find those points usually we only have recorded the big moments in history right not the the turning points that led to those big moments in history like um you know certain things that would have led to a certain prince becoming king in a certain kingdom right and then we only know about the king's great deeds. We don't know about what led to the point of him come, becoming, you know, the, the the ruler of his kingdom. But here, here with the with the beer hall push, we can see what that we can see basically what made it. We made we see what made, it. and it's it's not just made Hitler. It's what made a whole philosophy that transcends beyond Hitler himself. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's it's a whole it's a whole worldview was basically not necessarily born but catalyzed at this one point in time in history and for and, and it's a it's a very interesting thing to see it looking back again being 100 years later that we can look back to a specific point in time in history and say this is it this is where it happened um and from there you can draw an entire uh narrative of the entirety of the planet afterwards as far as what happened yeah um and that's hard to do, but that's what kind of creates a religion around national socialism is because it does have answers for everything. And that's basically what most, you know, like, and, and it has, it has a mythos. It has a founding, you know, understanding. It has points of interest throughout history. Um, you know, like there's like your, your old prophets or whatever you could say, like, you know, Meister Eckhart or these other guys that, you know, thought about these, these ideas long beyond themselves. But the point is that it has this, this founding, this founding concept, it has founding points, it has uh, founding characters. Uh, it, it's a whole ability for people to, again, we, we, we joked around in the other episode about the Nazi people or whatever, but if you were going to talk about a Nazi people or people in general, the history of that people. Yeah, it's the people, point. it's the people standing up against international Jewish finance. And granted, the objective of the Nazi party in 1923 was not the destruction of international Jewish finance. Right. Uh, it was th- simply the removal of that power from Germany. But I think by the end of the war, it had become clear that that had to be the objective. Yeah, because there was like, no other There, there was, was no, no other way. Like, you couldn't just free Germany. You had to free the world. Yeah, and I think that they realized that too late Yeah. in reality. 
um, then they didn't go as hard as they should have in, in, in a situation where they would have had to go global with the with the conflict. And that's probably, again, Hitler was probably thinking, oh, no, they'll sue for peace. We don't have to fund the, the you know, the measures. Yeah, well, Hitler was trying to, Hitler, Hitler, was, Hitler, like all of us, was trying to be a gentleman. Yeah. And was trying to be like, well, okay, I this is fair. It is fair for me to demand this. It's fair yeah. for me to demand that. And only toward the end of the war did they really start being like, you know what? Fuck it. Fuck it. Like, <laughs> these people haven't been playing fair the whole time. We have to treat them as enemies. Yeah. And they started doing things like putting out 24 hour a day, seven days a week broadcasting to the Middle East <laughs> in Arabic to yeah. be like, yeah, you have to rise up against the British Empire. You know, the, what, uh, you have to which, you have which to is do. right. Yeah. And that's but that's the thing is it's. Hitler, Hitler was as far as leaders and empires are concerned, right? He was the last of these great emperors that we've had in our, our long history. Um, but he was also basically the last European gentleman in that sense. And that's, unf- well, that was, um, the Supreme gentleman, uh, the guy, ah, shit. It was that guy in California who was a, a Supreme gentleman who, Love the ladies, and unfortunately went on a shooting spree. Oh God! Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, God, well, I can't think of his name. Elliot Roger. Oh God, no, no. Yeah, sorry, no, no, no. no. You, you said you said the ultimate gentleman, and I I thought oh, of Elliot Roger, the supreme gentleman. I didn't say supreme gentleman. Yeah, said, yeah, you didn't. You I, didn't. I, I Obviously, you know, gentleman. Hitler <laughs> is is yes, is is a true gentleman. As is a great to man. Supreme gentleman. <laughs> That's a whole different category of, of individual. Not a not a yeah, total supreme, weirdo a in a car. Is a different category of people. <laughs> so, but no, Hitler, I think, was the last gentleman leader, really, uh, and he unfortunately bit the bullet. Unfortunately, he was doing with churchill right and but that's the thing is he was dealing with parasitic elements that were dealing race he could deal i mean uh neville chamberlain what was i think a gentleman well it's the thing chamberlain was and what what was happening when chamberlain and hitler were together there was no war oh my (laughs) god wow what a crazy concept right like chamberlain wasn't frothing at the mouth like the fat bulldog churchill was like oh germany like that's literally all he was doing constantly, like frothing in the mouth and smoking a cigar, like just trying to get it. You know, I'm fucking across, not gonna cross the channel. Gotta get back over there. Rah, rah, rah. Like that's that was him the whole fucking war and before the gotta war, serve too. my Jew masters. Gotta yeah, serve like, them. He was just like, Jew a masters. Mad I love you. Leash. I love you so much. Like just unbelievable. And so anyway, the problem is is that um, Hitler uh, Hitler had to kind of contend with those those types of forces, and he he was a gentleman about it, and he he fucked up he should have he should have been playing the global game right like the 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 real predatory game the higher minded game like move like remove the mind from europe alone because it's not just about europe it's about the whole planet at this point right like now that we've had contact yeah with the whole this world, time the world yeah you know it's true though but because really truly any predator that understands the concept of resources space um uh breeding viability and all their stuff will understand that at this point in time it's a global game and you're you're presupposing here that predator a predator race is either jews or aryans you know any any or hominids. i mean or or the chinese i mean well yeah <laughs> yeah like, well, <laughs> like there's other ones but you're you're when you say predator you mean you're, you're insect, contrasting there are insect predators <laughs> Jew, jews and aryans right basically yeah like, or, or they're competing for the same the, niche. any of the high hominids any of the high hominids right they they, they are all like, and yes like for the most part it's it's 
us versus the main the main apex predator currently right now is the jew right they're the ones that are in charge of basically the right. most resources the most weaponry all the ability to control media and the minds of, of masses at a whim we have seen this consistently right just in, just in recent days we've seen this um they are the apex predator and so basically when you're having a predatory situation like that when it is the whole stakes are the planet itself it's king of the hill so that means it's everybody versus the guy at the top right so that's the unified you know planetary resistance against the jew uh, is what you know the only the only answer to to the threat is right. So once you have one guy at the top, because other, otherwise he's going to do the same thing that you have um, in you know not, not to bring in science fiction. So in other words, if do, you are if you are an air, off one by one, if you are a Haji mm-hmm. or a Black or right. a Spick who's listening to us right now, yeah. And I suspect I suspect we have a few listeners mm-hmm. uh, of of these categories. If you are one of these people, you should understand that. The Jew is playing you, and the only political move for you to make is to unite with your own people and to start attacking Jewish interests. And that's in your now. Yeah. And like I'm not like we are not saying that. Like we're we're whites, obviously. We're national socialists. We're not saying that from a cynical point of view. We're not trying to manipulate you. It is completely within. It is completely within <laughs> our interests. For you to do so. Yeah. And it's also in your interests. Yeah. If you examine it carefully, it's in your interests. It's <laughs> in our interests to attack Jewish power and not to in legal say terms. like a lot of these Arabs were this weekend un- unwittingly. I will I will grant them. Right. Align with Jewish power against whites, mm-hmm. because that's effectively what these Arabs in these Palestine rallies are doing. Unwittingly. Like right. they're being duped. They are not politically sophisticated enough to see what's going on here. Seemingly, no. But I would say the majority of the po- of the population isn't. Like that's the thing is that most oh, people don't. And that's that's the worst part about this is that these they they haven't imported in any like in, on the contrary of all them them saying, "Oh, we're importing the best and we're getting the doctors and blah." No, they're not. They're doing they're doing the exact opposite on purpose. They're getting the proles of the other races to come together, right? So they're acting on this. That would be bad either way. Like, yeah, I mean, well, it, the point, I mean, it'll be bad either way. The point being, though, is that the, the psychology that they're utilizing for the specific mass of individuals is basic mundane psychology, right? Like basic herd mentality. Same thing that they use on the majority of our masses for that point. That's why it works so well universally across the board like that. Um, so it's, it's it, but the thing is, is that you can easily sway them in the same way. Right, it's a double-edged sword. Like the masses are a double-edged sword in a sense in the in this Jewish scheme of, of, of importing them. So you can actually utilize them in a sense in the opposite direction. So you what you're saying is use Jewish tricks for good ends, <laughs> not just for Jewish evil ends. Effectively, you. It's could not look immoral it to way. use Jewish tricks for good ends. Right, it's, and then, it's only immoral to use them if you're a Jew. Because then it wouldn't even be a trick at that. And point. I agree with you. Yes, you know? <laughs> right. It's not a trick. It's yeah. just like, yeah, obviously you this is the right, the right thing, thing to do, and it just becomes the exact opposite of the trick, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um, but I, I think that that could be at least something that to be explored as far as uh, a message to reach out, uh, because it does come down to an evolutionary standpoint. Like the big macro picture is, um, you know. Hitler got our anthill 
the most united our anthill had ever been before <laughs> in history. If we mm. want to look at if we want to look at the world uh, in a in a very large uh, magnifying glass you know viewpoint, um, just like it's strange to say, but uh, there's a reason why Xi Jinping is so popular today, and it's because he has organized his hive into a massive you know functional body. Um, you can say the same thing about any any large uh, imperial style. Vladimir leader. Putin. Yeah, Putin's the same way. I well, I would say Putin's a Putin's kind of like that. I would say that he had he has a lot of backing because he is able to organize it in some way, shape, or form. Um, I don't think I don't think though that I don't think Russia is the ideal Russia Putin would want it to be currently, and I don't think that I right. think I think that it's all. I think that I think the Russian people, the Russian government. And the Russian way of things are, are that that are working are in a very serious predicament where they're in a Mexican standoff right now where it's like, all right, it's not so bad. So we just keep going like this until it gets better. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah, that. Putin, he. I think you're right, like Putin. I, I suspect Putin has like more sort of geopolitical world historical knowledge and vision. Yeah. Than he's able to implement oh for sure he's not a stupid man at all he's he is politically minded he's he's actually doing pretty well I but his his society just isn't in form uh no i mean as look, we would look what say it dealt with the past hundred years you know like it's it really like he has an elite of random assholes yeah, uh, yeah. To, to put it bluntly it's like it's like step it's like yeah you got here because you were a sneaky shithead <laughs> not because you're necessarily the best leader right. or the most useful to the state or anything else like right. so yeah he he's got problems um the country not- was gutted for 100 years you know, basically it's it's unfortunate but I think that I think it has a future if it continues on the path that it's going. I think that it has some form of future. I don't know what that future might be, but I think it at least has at least it has some kind of. It seems like it has some kind of future. Yeah. Especially if they have some kind of you know, I don't know, Asiatic alliance between Iran, China, and Russia. I think they can accomplish a lot, honestly, with that kind of resource power. I've been watching a lot of press TV lately. <laughs> oh, the Iranian thing. Yeah, the Iranians. Yeah, <laughs> it's fucking great. Like. It's so refreshing just to turn on the TV and the reporters say same things like the supposed Holocaust. Yeah. <laughs> I just casually say that on TV. It's great. Uh, uh, I love the Iranian government thing. You know, it's like the Iranian government's providing me something that I actually want. Right. Which is <laughs> a reasonable news program that tells things like it is. That's why I feel like we're in a dark age again, because the last time we had this this issue right in the last dark age, we got all of our cool information from the from the, the Middle East as well. And we went over there and got all of our philosophy and everything back. We're like, oh, oh, yeah. You know what? Mm. That was really cool info. Thanks, I guys. won't make any. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can make some. I can say some things against some certain institutions. Right. That yeah. would be pretty. Uh, but I won't. But uh, no, Iran. It's very interesting. Yeah. Good old, good old Persian government, I suppose. Or I, they don't like that, do they? I don't know. Who, I don't know what the the the, the taboo or non taboo that is. Look, we're saying we can say Iran, we can say Persia. Uh, one of these foreigners come up to me and they say, "Well, you know, it's actually uh, Farsi." You made a or, really good point about this. Oh, it's really Turkiya. It's not <laughs> Turkish. Or oh, it's actually Baharat, not India. It's like 
fuck you or oh it's Cote d'Ivoire Ivory Coast it's like shut up foreigner you have no (laughs) you cannot tell me how to speak English I get to choose what you are every if if this is one of this is this is such a pet peeve but like I I will never (laughs) never these foreigners I don't care if they're Europeans like if if they the, they wouldn't, but God forbid the Italians came to me and said, you have to call us Italia. I'd be like, fuck you. You're Italy. <laughs> you know, Sorry, when I speak never... English, you're Italy. If I speak in Italian, maybe I call you Italia. Yeah, yeah. Like to, to us or to them, we're Americanos. Exactly. Right. You're like these these they fucking Turks. Americans. The Turks right now are telling everybody, oh, Turkey, we are Turkey. It's a flex and you know it. Shut <laughs> the fuck <laughs> they're up. They're just flexing. Erdogan. Well, they're, so, they're so irrelevant. <laughs> they had to make us think about that nonsense. Oh, they suck i yeah but no the the naming convention thing needs to, to stop that's a massive problem but anyway i think, I think that, that also to tie that back into what we were discussing before is the beer hall push or whatever this naming convention thing it's the yeah whole, they're bavarians not yeah or like or whatever they want to call themselves right, like, so the, the you're bavarians is, <laughs> bavarians but no so they I believe it's a Hitler, latin word Hitler wanted to maintain a united germany uh and he thought very strongly about what the federation had done actually up to that point uh, and believed in what bismarck had done i know but he uh he was able he was able to kind of I think really honestly stop Bavaria from being separatist because of the push. The push did really stop that, that from happening um, because it made the federal government kind of oh, interesting. Ha- it turn like a, a more consolidated eye on like, what's going on with the individual governments and how they're able to handle mm-hmm. uprisings in their areas. I think he actually was able to pull something like that off. Maybe not, maybe not even wittingly, but if on in the grander scheme of yeah, things, I, I think he saying. was able to actually single handed or not single handedly, but, with this single event, stop secessionist movements from actually being considered as a viable option throughout Germany at the time. Um, just because, you know, it, I think just because the federal government would have cracked down harder on how uh, the police forces were, hmm. that, you know, consolidating uh, the German states into one organized thing. Interesting. Yeah. It's almost like we should go to Richmond and stage a coup against the U.S. government. <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but like that would be the, the analogous thing, right? So, well, that, that's what they would It would effectively be the same concept. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're you're no, 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 no. Mon- Montgomery. Let's just let's let's be real. Let's be real. LARPy. Here. Well, I mean, I was in Richmond because capital of the Confederacy or Montgomery something. Right? Was. Alabama. No, it wasn't. I was Richmond. I thought Montgomery, Alabama. Negative. Was. I mean, maybe they put it there for a little while. But oh, it was Richmond yeah. for most of the war. Oh, well, all right, fine. Well, one way or the other. So you do the march on Richmond or whatever, right? Yeah. The point being is that if they were, if that was to happen, um, then like all the su- it would be like in America if you did if you well, did federal, if you did a coup d'état from Richmond and it failed and you're thrown in prison, then it would force all the Southerners to be like, oh, actually, you know what, we we just have to like support a total like national revolution and not just a, like regional secession. And the federal government would crack the fuck down. <laughs> well, of course, of course I mean, ob- obviously, yeah, like obviously uh, on all the, all on all types of concepts. So of, we're just, uh, we're drawing the analogy to America to make it like clearer to people. Like actually, I think Texas would have been a better example. Yeah. Because Texas is Texas more has been, and, has been a separate state. Right. And Bavaria would have been analogous to that as well, because Bavaria was for the longest time. One yeah. Bavaria longer. is to Texas as, or yeah. Bavaria is to Germany as Texas is to America as Ukraine is to Russia. 
<laughs> and we're gonna get fan mail from that <laughs> actually though no. um so but yeah so i think if you were to throw try to do like a revolution and say like um houston right um or san antonio for that matter uh then you know the u.s government cracking down on any of this because there is still currently secessionist rhetoric right. in texas absolutely right? like that is there has been there has been continuously right. secessionist rhetoric right and i think something like that would force the hand of one party side or the other when it comes to the dialogue and well i mean i don't think the federal government's going to take that lying down <laughs> so no, i think of course that not. one is obviously going to you know prevail over the other hmm. um if if the goal was to prevent say a secessionist movement from happening in texas that you know, not to say that like, okay, hey, uh, well, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not telling Antifa to go out and start revolutions or whatever in the name of fascist organization. Yeah, if, if you and I get brought get brought up in court because yeah, like, Antifa tries to stage a coup against the U.S. government in Houston or Austin, right, Austin was where they would do it, or, or Tucson. Yeah. It's like, okay, <laughs> I don't know what to say here, yeah. like Your Honor, but this is fucking bullshit right yeah <laughs> kangaroo court no that's not what we're not aren't saying anything like that but the point is is that if that it would there would be ramifications on a federal level for a, an attempted coup in a majoritively autonomous state um as far as how politics uh, and police police forcing and everything else like that as far as law enforcement would be concerned judicial systems and everything else like that all the stuff that comes down downstream of that uh, whenever you would have yeah so by sta- staging looking. a coup in bavaria hitler essentially forced all the bavarians to be like no it's not we can't just take munich we have to take berlin basically we have to take yeah. it all basically yeah they, they they focused on the federal thing which is what the of, of what the um the republican and democratic parties have done in the united states for a long time now they, they figured out that it doesn't matter about your individual state elections because states don't have any rights it comes down to <laughs> it comes down to Washington. Uh, facts. Yeah, it's just it's it's Washington, right? Like everybody focuses on the federal election. Nobody gives a shit about state elections. But when's the last time you've ever heard anybody campaigning, like you know, on a serious level for uh, my state legislation or like my fucking you know local? Yeah, government. I mean, Not only only it, liberals, it, yeah, only liberals, and I'll tell sh- you why. And that's I'll sad. tell you why. It's sad. liberals campaign for the the local elections because mm-hmm. they can actually you know make a difference. Yeah, conservatives, right wingers don't. Because even if they did, they would just get overturned in federal court. Right. Duh, duh, duh. So like, it, I mean, conservatives still do because they're fucking stupid. Right. Um, and I think you there's like concepts, there's theories about it, but the point is that you have to focus on the big fish in this because that's again in a fed, in a federal system, the federal system is what prevails over all else. We already fought a war about this, guys, longer than a hundred years ago. <laughs> like there was a war in the 1860s about this specific topic, <laughs> uh, and it had nothing to do with blacks and slavery. It had to do specifically with this, with whether or not the federal government has power over states and whatnot. And uh, might is actually seemingly right when it comes to historical documentation uh and the federal government nine times out of ten has the force to back up against smaller groups that make up its larger whole which is like look at the holy roman empire for instance what happened is little principalities decided to get buck uh my imperial army marches down into your little grotto and takes over your vineyards Mm. so i mean there's a lot of things to consider here um but with that comes strength and power because if you are able to take over the federation, right, and political means like we saw with with you know after the push, because um, the, yeah, the the push is in stark contrast to what how you know how they actually got elected later, right? Instead of going after right, gun, they guns they just, they they just dis- they did away with um, 
the idea of an illegal coup and yeah. they said we are going to seize power by illegal means yeah and they did uh phenomenally well actually but it, it's a, it's a massively stark contrast between the two of these um these aspects and how they were able to kind of shape their message uh in, in doing that that transition there um yeah the the last so i didn't want to spend you know we don't we'll wrap up because don't need to spend too much time on the beer hall push. I mean, there's, there's like infinite things you could say about it. And, and really it would be great to like present a whole scheme of maneuver and, Oh yeah. Uh, talk about all the details, but when it comes down to it, the beer hall push, what I, the last thing I, I, I want to say about it is that you look at the 16 men who are killed and, you know, these guys aren't really famous, unfortunately. Mm. And it's because, you know, we kind of think of the people who died during the war as being, you know, more important and being more heroic. Like the guys who died in the Eastern Front and all this stuff. And like, obviously, those men were super heroic. Right. But what's so heroic about the 16 who died on the Beer Hall Putsch or in the, in the Beer Hall Putsch is that these guys were they didn't have just physical bravery they weren't just willing to face bullets they were also morally brave so they were willing to take a stand on something that they knew to be true and knew to be right even if it meant their family hating them their friends hating them their community hating them and them being exiled from like everything and that's what's so great about it. And if you look at the portraits of these guys, like they come from all classes. They're like proletarians. They're they're working class. They're they're military officers, aristocrats. Like they're they're a whole mix, a, a cross section of the German uh, class uh, classes. And all of them though have like fantastic physiognomy. They all look like the absolute best men like the kind of guy you'd want to marry your daughter off to right <laughs> <laughs> like oh this guy this guy he looks trustworthy yeah yeah darling like sure honey yeah, yeah. <laughs> go yeah. ahead go for it uh I, the the one the one guy uh i'll mention the the hatter uh Bauriedel, uh was one of the guys who was killed and there's some portraits of him and he just looks like the biggest, happiest, like, fellow. Like, the most trustworthy, like, trustworthy to a fault. Like, if you ask this guy, hey, um, you know, do I look good today? He would be like, well, I don't know. Like, you know, you, your coat looks kind of off today. Like, you, if you're fishing for a compliment with him, he would, like, be a, be a dick about it because he's so fucking honest. Like, he has <laughs> that, like, complete honesty in his face. Um, I, I don't know who this guy was. Like, there's obviously very little records on any of these guys. I mean, or most of them. They're just kind of random guys. Right. But you feel, you kind of feel like you know who these guys are because you've encountered them in the streets and in, in, in like politics or on teams you've been on in the past, whether it be like your sports teams uh, that were actually real sports teams that mattered and like there was some sacrifice involved or. Uh, whatever else like wherever you have encountered in your life people who are real you've seen men who look like these guys i i challenge you to go and look through the portraits and think about do i know a guy who looks like that because you probably do 
<laughs> like these are common physical like the physical type is the reflective of society of of who these people are and you probably know a guy especially if you're from the midwest uh you probably know a guy who looked like this people from the south are a little bit different like racially different but especially people in the midwest you have like the common racial type with these people and the 16 who were killed are in a way more important than all the people who died in world war ii we're not all of them but like individually like man for man like what they did what they were willing to do is far more difficult than like the precedent it sets you know yeah they were willing to lay their lives down and then the whole organization after that had that to live up to so it does really set like a ground level that you can't go back from it's either the organization either flounders or it succeeds at that after that point because what yeah because really if it doesn't those consequence than that right those guys died for nothing yeah and they didn't die for nothing because they were still talking about them right exactly so that's you know and that's that's the legacy that's legend so <laughs> so happy november 9th uh it is the schicksaltag in german history so it's not just the 1923 putsch but it's also the day that uh, the stab in the back happened yep uh it's also it's also crystal knocked yes it is. <laughs> <laughs> there's a few others too uh from 1800s that happened there's a few there's a couple of other random uh events that have happened throughout german history uh that have happened on november 9th and it's just randomly yeah yeah in the schicksaltag the so, day day of fate yeah a few hundred years of of random things that have occurred on a specific day in history in german history so yeah so i hope you will uh enjoy the episode and even though you know november 8th the 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 100th anniversary was at some point like if you want to really pinpoint it on the clock it was at some point east coast u.s time about uh 9 p.m. yesterday would have been or, or, or 11 p.m. yesterday would have been when like Hitler and the NSDAP started marching like a- across the Isar River and then up and then uh, the shooting would have happened around like what 9 or 10 in the morning Munich time so six hours before that but so, yeah. it is still November 9th it is still the Schicksaltag and that's why I bring this special episode to you today on the 100th anniversary of the day of faith so hail our martyrs hail victory and say hi we're planning a transference of power i'm forming a provisional reich government roman his men wait here we surround the barracks the seize munich the march on berlin the national revolution has begun the building is surrounded. No one may leave. Any trouble, you will be shot. You have been accused of high treason and called an enemy of the state. If a thief takes your money and you take it back, does that make you also a thief? Sorry to surprise you like this. Where is General Ludendorff? We'll move without them then. The people are with us. 
There's an armed group heading towards the barracks. Mobilize the army. This is a tedious, amateur organization. Nobody has anything right! Adolf Hitler, you have been accused of high treason. In 1918, we were betrayed by the November criminals. How do you feel? Guilty. The turning point in my life was when the blindfold was ripped from my eyes! And I could see my enemy! Our enemy! The Jews! Our principles are our principles and cannot be changed! possible outcomes. Either the enemy passes over our body, or we will pass over theirs. I should fall. Wrap my body in the swastika band. See her! See her!